Professor Jill Goulding, you are Professor of Systematic Theology in Regis College in the University of Toronto. You have lots of other titles as well, but for the moment we'll focus on the theology because you're writing as a theologian about the issue of clerical abuse of children in the Catholic Church. It's a really important topic covered from a lot of angles. Theologically, can you explain what you're doing there as a theologian? Thank you very much, Pat. What I've been trying to do, I realise that I've been involved in this area since 1995. I looked out the other day and I found that I'd written a response to church in England and Wales at that time. But latterly, what I've been concerned about is when I've been reading reports from bishops' conferences and even in Canada, which I think has been one of the foremost conferences to really engage well, there's very little in their response that deals with the theological dimension. And when I say that, um, I don't mean something abstruse or uh, just not related to practicality. I mean that we have something to offer in the church from our faith tradition that other organizations don't. And I've been concerned that we're not offering it because when I read sometimes bishops' responses or reports to commissions, they seem to be going down the same route of sociology and psychology and economics and such. And I'm not saying that these aren't important, but I I guess I passionately believe that we have something life-giving to attend to, which comes from our faith. And so I wrote recently a document which I called Theology Informing the Response to the Abuse Crisis for the Bishops. And it's been translated now. It's only a short document, 12 pages, into Italian, Spanish and French. And what I do within that is I reference up the issue, for example, of authority and that I believe, as Pope Francis does, that it's an abuse of power. But one way of looking at that is an abuse of authority. And then the whole understanding of authority as service after the manner of Jesus. So that's one dimension of this. But I take this further because I think one of the difficulties that I have encountered in being in meetings around the whole area of abuse is that people seem to treat it as an issue or a problem. And I'm thinking to myself, it's not an issue or a problem. It is people who have been uh, seriously profaned, for want of a better way of putting it, by actions of clergy and others who represent the church. And so uh, one of the things I have looked at and bring up in that document is the whole understanding of the depth of that suffering that's been inflicted. It's a very interesting word you've used, profaned. Would you explain yes. that for me a bit more? You know, yes. Unpack what you mean by that. Yeah, thank you. Yes, profanation, what I mean by that, is a little like you could compare it to, we talk about the word sacrilege. You know, I think in times gone by it was sacrilege if 
if sacred vessels weren't touched with gloves on because we thought that they were holy. People are holy. Children and vulnerable people are particularly holy in the sense of they are to be considered holy. If you think about the reality in the gospel, Jesus says quite clearly things like, unless you become like a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't just talking about us all becoming humble. He talks about letting the children come to him. He talks about anyone who offends a child, the millstone should be put around their neck, etc. These are really graphic images. And it's important to have a feel for how seriously Jesus aligns himself with a child. So what I'm saying in saying it's a profanation abuse is that any abuse, any abuse of anyone, but particularly a child or a vulnerable adult, is an abuse of Christ himself. Now that's saying a lot more than we've said in the past. And it's to make that connection between Jesus and children and vulnerable adults in a way that's inviolable. So that's what I understand by this reality of profanation. In addition to that, I talk about how we need to perhaps reclaim the understanding of Jesus as the eternal child of the Father, because he continues to be the son of the Father within the Trinity. So there is a sense in which Jesus, more than anyone, knows what the childhood is about. And surely, as we look at his life, passion, death and resurrection, we have a sense of he knows what suffering is about. He knows what vulnerability is about, extreme vulnerability. So it seems to me that if we as church can come to glimpse something of these understandings, then there's a twofold possibility, I feel. One is, and I, I have sort of run these ideas past survivors as well. One is that if survivors, or sometimes people like to be called victims too, have a sense that we glimpse something of the depth of their pain, that actually can be another wee step forward. And for the church, if we can acknowledge that depth in our understanding, that is a step forward for ourselves in a life-giving way as church. Because we can move from that place to having a sense of the reality of what is life-giving here. And that life-giving is linked to the synodal process as well, because it's a life-giving sense of listening and hearing at depth and then speaking from that place when we speak. It's very interesting because what's striking me as you're speaking there is the sense that one got reading the reports of either religious orders or the documents that they released, the responses that people who covered up the abuse, like there's one thing if you have a pathology of being a paedophile, mm. but covering it up is another level. Because you don't even have that, if you want, an inverted commas excuse, or at least context. What is striking me, therefore, in what you're saying is that, and what struck me in reading those documents was the absolute lack of getting 
what was done to the children. The impact of that kind of abuse that it doesn't never seem to really hit home. This is horrendous in the way that if somebody had come in and said, your man's stealing a million off you, Mm. there'd have been a lot more action. Whereas he's abusing a child. Oh, protect the institution. What will we do next? Move him on. So you're really saying that in some way it has to be framed in the language of the very institution, the absolute gravity of what they're doing, and you're saying that they are abusing the body of Christ. Absolutely. I think that was very well well put, if I may say so. Um, I think there's two other points I'd want to raise, and I think it's related to the position of when people cover up which are in no way am I saying that I'm in agreement with at all. One position that has ruled everything else is fear, what might happen. And the other, it seems to me, is a lack of understanding of children, the theology of childhood, the reality of vulnerability as regards adults. And in that lack of understanding then, there is a withdrawal along with that fear into what is the safe position for me to adopt. And nowadays it can even be, how can I stop anything? How can I circumvent myself such that I don't even have to respond to this, which is totally really unchristian. But it shows how I think fear can dominate in a way that, of course, is unhealthy and can lead to very unhealthy actions. But if we face that fear, then again, it's part of this sense of moving down the synodal process. It's listening to our own fears and the fears of others as well and saying the spirit is bigger than our fears. But it's little like when we go... (laughs) if I can put it in this way, you know, we have to acknowledge our wrongdoing before we can move on. And that seems to me to be the most important thing. My sense in talking to survivors is that the issue of finance is far secondary, far, far down the line, from the most important sense of an acknowledgement that was never previously made and that needs to be made. But now it seems to me it needs to be made by the whole body. So often what I hear is people saying, oh, well, it's the priests and the bishops, it's their fault, they Mm. need to sort it out. Mm. No, it's the fact of the whole church. I wrote another little document which I called A Most Grievous Fault, where I just really focused on authority and the way we use authority. And that was for the wider church because it indicates we all have authority. How do we use it? You know, if I'm a bus conductor, I have authority. If I'm a teacher, I have authority and a parent and such like. But all of us, unless there are clear sort of issues of perhaps mental health issues and such like. But we generally all have some authority. How are we using that? And I like that point you're making, that because if we other the other, be it the survivor, victim, 
or the, the clerics who covered up or the people who did it, we then remove ourselves from exactly. that I am addressed by this. If I am remaining a Catholic in this church, I am addressed by this and I have to have, I need to, and you used to maybe use authority. My response is really important. What I am also striking me as you're speaking is the word vulnerability. You've used it a few times now. It is interesting that we don't really often talk about a vulnerable Christ. We prefer to talk about an all-powerful God or the resurrected Christ. You know, the powerlessness of crucifixion is a key factor. Passion means to undergo. Mm-hmm. So there is something also, I think, in what you're saying there about recognising the vulnerability of God. Absolutely. I talk about that in one of my courses that I teach um, because we see vulnerability very often as a weakness as an, and as negative, rather than a sense that actually vulnerability is built into what it is to be human. And actually, I often say, I think we encounter one another in more real ways, at more depth, certainly, through our vulnerabilities and not through our areas of expertise. Perhaps a silly example, but I remember when we moved into a new place and I was looking for a hammer. I didn't have a hammer. So I went next door and asked for a hammer. And that was how we got to know our neighbours. But it wasn't that I sort of invited them to some kind of theological lecture that I was giving. <laughs> but I was in need and they were able to assist me. One of our sisters who has gone to God now, she used to work particularly at one of our houses. She did a great job with our laundry and such and she used to love one story I told her that my mother used to say when common sense was given out, I was reading a book. So, in other words, I'm not really very practical. But <laughs> the reality is we all help one another through the gifts that we have. And so, yes, I think that's really important to raise up for us. Because if we're comfortable with vulnerability and have an image of a God who is vulnerable, then it also we see that vulnerability then in vulnerable adults and children and it's easier to see the face of God in that. Exactly. In a sense, God made God's self vulnerable, vulnerable. for us. And that could take us on to Pope Francis and Mercy. It really could. And your book on that, although I, I want one quick thing, do you do much on atonement? Because that to me seems to be a theme that if the church is to move forward, as you've said, and if we as a body of Christ are to move forward, that some form of atonement is the way and it is a biblical term it is it is a biblical term i think my sense is and certainly in canada one of the the bishops group that is focused in this area they have a number of survivors involved and i think it's vital that there should be that as we look at ways forward it should include far more in the way of reference to survivors such that we can move together. So I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about your book. I know we're under time pressure. Pope Francis and Mercy. This is your latest book, A Dynamic Theological Hermeneutic. Why did you pick Mercy as the theme? Yes, I I picked Mercy because just as I finished my other book, I just felt this is the way forward. This is what Pope Francis is This is the lens through which he sees everything, the merciful reality of God. And so I 
in this book, I come to a very, this is a very theological term, I talk about ultimately in the sort of centre of the book, I talk about a Trinitarian ontology of mercy. Now, what that means is that mercy is integral to how the Trinity lives. It's not just God shows mercy to us, but mercy is the reality at the heart of God. And then I enter into a little discussion with a particularly important theologian. But I start off here. One of my sisters read the preface just the day before yesterday, and she said, I didn't know you had fractured your spine. And I said, yes, that was just after I'd written this book. After you'd written this book on mercy, you fractured your spine. I know, after I drafted it. But it was an experience for me of God's mercy in and through other people, as it were. So what I do is I just try and lay out how it seems to me that Pope Francis is engaging here. I talk about a foundations for a dialogue on mercy, which really is quarrying all Pope Francis's addresses and conferences, etc., homilies and that sort of thing, giving a sense, a great breadth of how he understands mercy. Then I talk about, and your listeners might particularly like this, chapter two focuses on the Ignatian foundations for mercy, because it's very rooted in uh, the spiritual exercise, St. Ignatius Lola. Then I make a sort of a bridge between two and three by speaking about the sacred heart and devotion to the sacred heart and link into the specific really uh, Christological or Christ-like underpinnings of mercy. Mm-hmm. A penultimate chapter is the Trinitarian horizon, because that's very much an area of my focus. I teach Trinity and ecclesiology. And then engaging ecclesiological ramifications. In other words, what are the consequences for the church? And I look at that both within the Roman Curia and in the rest of the world. And also, too, raises up how Pope Francis sees politics is through the lens of mercy. And that, so the world international stage, he's looking at it, and particularly when there's great sort of violence and terrorism and the use of religion in that way, he's clearly opposed to that. But he also tries to indicate the importance of us looking at the reality of people's fears again and in a sense why we seem to be in a little bit of a calmer stage now but why this sudden outpouring of terrorism you know why the need for violence etc I also talk about his relationships with young people and how he puts before them the the challenge of life in a way that they can relate to often talking about football teams and such. (laughs) But within this, what I hope to do is help people to see that mercy isn't just about sacraments of reconciliation. It is about that, but there's so much more involved. And that what Pope Francis is calling us to is to have a merciful heart towards one another. And again, that links into the Sindel process. If we listen at depth to one another... I think that sense of mercy will become apparent to us because we will hear other people's fears and concerns and joys and sorrows and that brings us into glimpsing just a little of how God sees us.